welcome back, everybody. Uh, this week, we've got uh, two gentlemen from uh, Hammerhead with us this week. Um, again, I've got uh, Laz here and Rob, and I'll just let you guys kind of introduce yourselves uh, and tell us a little bit about you know who you are, um, what your guys' product is, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, um, well, I'm Lawrence, uh, co-founder and head of technology at Hammerhead. Early on, uh, Pete, our CEO, approached me with an idea to help cyclists navigate. At that stage, it was nothing more than a 3D printed model and some hand notes. Pete had been working on this idea for a while. Most of the work was kind of understanding the needs of cyclists, both him and myself being pretty serious cyclists, and trying to find the team, the motley crew of initial people who were going to help him build this idea. So I was, he needed a, a hardware person who was comfortable at least identifying vendors, scoping product and dealing with engineering uh, of the physical product and a software partner who could write the software required. A big part of the early thesis was let's not distract cyclists while on a bike, but let's provide them all the information they need to follow a route or confidently ride where they need to get to. Right. So like I, you know, need to take a turn, uh, you know, you know, on the right hand side up here in 200 feet or something, right? Like very like visual with LEDs, right? Exactly. And the shape of the product was, it looked like a, a hammerhead shark. So the company name was hammerhead. It was hammerhead one. And, uh, yeah, I, I told him I had roughly $5,000 in six months and if this idea didn't work in that six month time frame, I was out. Uh, and that was really the beginning of that. And now seven years later, we've, we've onto our third generation of product and we can go into those different products later in the podcast, but that's enough for my introduction. I guess I have played hardware product role or hardware engineering role in the company from the beginning, but I've crossed over into software products. Uh, and obviously just general business function, you know, wearing many hats like we have to mm -hmm, uh, sure. in a small business. Right, right. And just you guys are about uh, 40 people today, roughly, yeah? Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. So 40 people, yep. international, you know, we're quite a distributed team, um, but we have a majority of our engineering uh, resources within the States at the moment. Cool. Yeah. I'm Robert Martinez. I am VP of Hardware Engineering joined in 2016, still here. Uh, <laughs> I, I joined uh, after the Hammerhead won and just when the Carew won, then HX was its project name, was that a pencil sketch and a like half page product brief on what Lawrence and Pete wanted to do. Uh, and so that was you know how I entered the picture. And I think the way that you sold it to me was you were hiring me to replace you so that you could then work on like the next biggest fire in the company. Pretty much, yeah. It was, we, I needed someone who was willing to take on the sort of multitude of engineering challenges in the, in the full scope of product development. And at that stage, we were still a tiny organization. I mean, we must have been about... I think there were seven or something. I was going to say seven people. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's red fires, not fire. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple fires. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just how product development goes, right? I'm so glad you guys use that term as well, like put out the fire, because mm -hmm. in you know when you're early on in product development, you don't know what the next hard thing is going to be until it gets to you, and then you start putting them out, and eventually you get into the the groove of okay, now we're tightening the bolts down, we're getting into production, we're figuring out all those loose ends, but it's such an open-ended problem at the beginning, like a, a sketch, right, mm -hmm. and a one-page product brief, and you got to figure out, okay, what's the hard part next? What do we need to fill? Like, how did you find, you know, Rob to to get there is one of those fires you had to put out. Yeah, exactly. So it's that, you know, it's not an engineering problem most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of fires aren't just technical. For sure. Some of the earliest problems, I think, in a business are often just resources. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you are limited on every front for anything that you want to do. So you have to either have very diversely capable people to deal with those limitations mm -hmm. and like go and fill the gaps that, that you will undoubtedly have, or you have to have some other access to capital and outside resources, you mm -hmm. know, and, and you will pay for those outside resources. Um, but yeah, early on in a business, when you face kind of trade-offs of what can we make that is going to be good, mm -hmm. you can only make a certain amount of things that are going to be good, whether it is, um, you know, focus on product development or focus on marketing or business development, you really do have to take the, the sort of very small crew of people that you have, um, augment them with whatever resources you're missing, so through contractors, which mm -hmm. we've done historically, and then drive towards the things that are going to get you to the, the most meaningful next milestone. Um, and, you know, we can go into specifics on maybe a few of those with examples of, of product development over over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and I think that the multifaceted like team early on is something we were talking about earlier that that is such a unique person to find in, in engineering. You know, a lot of engineers go to school and they specialize, right? I'm a mechanical engineer. I specialize mm -hmm. in steels and aluminum and metal forming, right? Or I specialize in plastics. And you get these guys that are either early in their career and specialized or like studied this for a master's degree. And that's not who you really need for an earlier stage product development, right? You're, you're looking for a guy that's not afraid to work on plastics, but then also help write software spec, yeah. right? Like, how do I make this entirety of a thing feel good and be what I would like to produce and, and deliver to the world? I think that's such a unique part of what startup hardware companies do is that they're having to go through the entire process of not just the plastics, but the physical good or, or the electronics or the software. What is important with my team and the time that we have and what do we focus on to make it unique. Um, one of the questions I'd love to ask is what did you guys think collectively was that killer thing about the crew one when you were developing? What was the one you weren't willing to put on the budget line of like feature or, or, you know, big thing you wanted to focus on? Screen. Yeah. I think that was, that was a major thing And mm -hmm. you know, we, we looked at the current landscape of, of bike computers and were you know felt felt like they were great pieces of hardware they achieved a function very well like um but the the technology wasn't necessarily in a in a state that really unlocked software potential and a big early kind of driving element for us was let's put a very nice looking screen on a bike computer uh, that has you know rich colors is much more reflective of smartphone technology um, but 
can still be legible in sun, sunlight. And that, that, was a, that was an interesting sourcing challenge. You know, there's, there's not many screens in the world that can both be legible in sunlight, have high pixel density, a lot of colors, and still be low power enough to last all day, like a like a bike computer requires. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, your smartphone, you turn it on and off all day, and you do not run it with the screen on with navigation, logging sensor data right. uh, in broad blazing sunlight on on a bike under in- extreme shock and vibration. When I feel like the size of your display too is kind of in a no man's land, right? Because Cell phone screens obviously have gotten way bigger over the years. I mean, even when the days of Crew 2, I mean, screen sizes were already going up, right? And obviously, any kind of screen development is is really, like, very custom, uh, you know. So you, you either have to have the money to develop that, you know, a screen just for your application or really kind of piggyback on what existing options there are in the market, right? Well, so now you're getting right into, like, where we get constrained very early, Sure. Right. It's like we we knew that we wanted to run something off of Android. Right. So, you know, of course, that constrains you and like what kind of platforms you can run that on. And then screen being the other big one, you've pointed out exactly there was no way we were ever going to raise enough capital or have enough time to develop, you know, the best screen to fit the form factor that we wanted. And so there are not many players in that no man's land. And often, you know, they built it for a different application entirely, not smartphones. And so, you know, we got... Uh, pretty lucky. I think it was Laz that found our vendor. And, you know, that's something where getting into like the holistic picture, mm-hmm. it's one thing to identify that a component in, as important as this exists. Mm-hmm. It's a whole other thing to be able to actually talk to the people who make it and have them give you time of day. Yep. And then it's yet a third thing to actually ink a deal with them where they're willing to sell it to you and deal with you as such a small fish. Right. And it's, then support you and give you early prototypes before your main orders. And like, mm-hmm. that's the, the other whole wonderful world of product development is it's great when you can go commit large POs and you're ready to go and manufacture and the vendor's going to make money, but it's also this, what I'll call like per interpersonal game of convincing a vendor that they should bet on you and give you some engineering time up front and prototypes that you can, you know, buy at cost, but they don't make money on that. Right. Mm-hmm. And how do you convince them to build that relationship? And I think that's something you guys have done really, really well is your your supply chain relationship you guys built, right? That was like the core to you guys being successful. Certainly some of those, some of the vendors like the screen vendor was a critical mm-hmm. vendor to maintain. And we were always in tension, like Rob said, with just their expectations of unit volumes mm-hmm. versus our growth as a business. And the, we, you can tell the vendor you're gonna make hundreds of thousands of units a year. Sure. But they don't believe you until you order hundreds of thousands of units mm-hmm. a year. You know, sure. It's, it really, if the PRs are coming, they're happy. If they're not, you're really just like everyone else and kind of trying to buy their product mm-hmm. and trying to get the lowest price. When you're super early stage and you're in China, mm-hmm. oftentimes a PO is a late stage relationship, like achievement. Like oftentimes it's just like you need to place a deposit of some eye-wateringly high amount mm-hmm. for, you know, one of your most expensive components, and then they'll start making it for you, right? So it's like mm-hmm. a lot of where things get lost in the weeds or not even lost in the weeds, like is not internalized on day one is that 
you need to have a lot of money mm -hmm. in order to even begin your first manufacturing run. And that first manufacturing run has with it so much uncertainty for all the players. Are they going to actually deliver what they're saying they're going to? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, most people are, who are in hardware who have negotiated any kind of manufacturing deal will always come back to payment terms, right? And mm -hmm. if, you, if you're in your first negotiation with a vendor who you've never engaged with before, they are going to try dial those terms as much to secure levels for themselves as possible. You know, we will only start this with 50% down payment or, or something of those and of, it, the, of that order. And it leaves our dock after you've paid off all of them, mm -hmm, right? right? If they don't yeah. trust you yet, right? And that's the, I think the challenge dealing internationally is in the US, there's a little bit more to hold people to the fire and getting you know, net 30 and chasing them up if they don't pay you. But across international borders, that this gets harder and harder, right? Well, so that's where in crew one, that was like why I moved to China mm -hmm. so early on, because it was really clear that the whole ecosystem for what we were trying to leverage, which was like the cell phone manufacturing ecosystem, which Shenzhen is the capital of the world for that. Right. Where, you know, we are too small of a team to pay someone just to be there full time. And our best way to enforce any agreement is to make sure I was just like a DD cab ride away from any <laughs> vendor. So that if anything went wrong or if I suspected anything, just shoot him a WeChat message. Be like, I will be there. In five minutes. In, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, not, it's, it's a large place. Yeah. Right? It's like larger than the size of LA. So it's I mean, like, I'll be there, be there within two hours. Right. W what was that like? I mean, obviously you, uh, you know, grew up in the U.S. Um, I mean, had you ever really spent time abroad uh, for any significant period of time bef before moving there? Uh, never lived abroad. Got it. No. Yeah. It was very much just uh, signing up for the adventure. Yeah. And I mean, you, it was not part of the deal, right? It's like, this was not no, a thing. It wasn't that an expectation. It was not an expectation, nor did Lawrence or Pete ever like ask me about it. It was just doing the first round of uh, ODM vendor quoting and like on site, right. just mm -hmm. like feeling out and audits and like it became and apparent like to you at some point, like during one of those trips that maybe like, like first trip. To, to make this yeah. actually happen, I have to like be here. First trip. It was a three-week trip, uh -huh. and by the end of the third week, I realized that in order to enforce the contract I had just signed, I needed to be there in order to to not just like you know enforce the contract, also like sure. help with the design and the development, because one of our top-level strategies for Crew One was to find a design house locally in Shenzhen that already had a lot of their critical component supply chain built up for what they specialized in which was not cycling computers. And so we would have to pick and choose which parts of that to use for us versus which parts would have to be new. And then anytime you're using something new, new uh, design concept, new vendor, new part, mm -hmm. that kicks off this whole chain of validation that you need to execute on well in order for you to not just be bitten, you know, when you're right. too far to go back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and. You know, credit to the kind of that recognition that Rob had and that just for Hammerhead was such a critical kind of business outcome. The fact that Rob moved out there and was willing to really drive that product development process with the person, the vendor that was going to ultimately build that product meant that one, we were able to build the product on a budget 
that I don't think would have been possible in any other structure. Um, mm -hmm. And two, ultimately deliver on a timeline and at volumes with manufacturing consistency that we needed to survive as a business. You know, we, that product had to be sold by the thousands and it had to perform reliably under very difficult conditions. Like, it's hard to under, it's hard to overemphasize how harsh the cycling environment can be right. for specific types of riding. Not everyone is a maniac on a bicycle and you know, racing 12 hours through gravel roads in the back roads of, of um, Tasmania. But those riders who rely on our product to do those things right. and every other cyclist who relies on our product to safely navigate a, a route right. expect it to to operate in those conditions reliably. Well, I guess it like I feel like it only takes one instance, right, to, to damage your cycling computer, damage your bike. I mean, even I remember earlier this year, I think like day three or four owning a new bike, I was just going along and uh, there was like, uh, you know, just this just giant like crack in the road that I had hit and like, bam, like instantly like uh, gashed like the rear tire and to the point like it wasn't even repairable, right? But similarly, like I feel like even if you're not trying on a bicycle to, you know, go crazy, like it's just like part of the environment, right? Uh, you know, For you sure. can hit a curb or you can hit, a, you know, an object or something like that. And, you know, you have to build the product to like be able to withstand that, right? For sure. And for our business and some of the, some of the reasons I, I was really eager to start this business kind of goes back to, to these points about, people entering the world of cycling or new cyclists feeling the sort of the weight of safety concerns, the kind of sheer amount of technical barriers and things that they have to learn about the bike to, to use it reliably. Um, it, it's, it's definitely the barriers to entry to cycling are a problem. You know, I, I really do. I fundamentally believe everyone in the world should ride a bike for whatever reason, transport, fitness, sure. um, enjoyment, adventure. But if we could, as a business, and this was sort of early on what Pete and I really cared about, if we could, as a business, make that experience a little easier, build products to make that experience better, we would lower the barriers to entry to cycling and make it more enjoyable. Because it's often a sort of level of understanding of the sport, a comfort that you need to reach that makes cycling kind of a thing that you return to. So many people buy a bicycle and then are on this arc of sort of development and just hit the, a barrier of fear or, or safety concern or they, they have an accident, hopefully, you know, God forbid. Sure. Um, and then that bike goes into a garage and is never used again. You know, and that's like a, a super avoidable thing with, with just tools that make you more confident and kind of uh, an incremental way of getting into the sport. So at a macro level, um, that's obviously what we would like to facilitate down the road. Sure. Um, at a micro level, you know, it starts off with simple things like when you're riding, it would be great to ride a different route every time so that you see new parts of your city. Right. Uh, and you can be confident well, that when you load that route, you can get to your destination. I think you key on a really important thing, which is is the route, right? I feel like when 
if, if you're bicycling in like a new city or even you're bicycling for the first time, I feel like and this pairs a lot with safety. It's like, where can I ride my bike and do so like confidently and, and feel safe? Like, are the roads going to have uh, a bicycle path or is there, you know, going to be a, a trail nearby or like, like, how am I going to go about that? And I feel like, uh, again, one of the things that I think you guys have done like brilliantly online is like the ability to sort of like map out uh, a route and look at, you know, regular satellites, you know, hybrid maps or even ones that overlay trails and sort of like lay down that route, load that into your computer and then be able to just like follow that route and, and go out sort of with that confidence knowing, um, you know, I'm not going to all of a sudden make a, you know, a wrong left hand turn and be on like a two lane highway or something or like putting myself in a situation where um, I'm no longer like comfortable. And sure, as time goes on, you know, you, you build up and depending upon how well you know, like your local area, maybe that's not as much of an issue. But again, even for, I think like myself, uh, when when we moved offices and trying to like figure out, okay, like how am I gonna ride a bicycle if I want to, to the new office and feel like I can do that comfortably for like a commute, right? Uh, again, like like used your guys' tools to sort of like plan that out. And, and over time, like I've tweaked it, right? Like you find, you know, different ways to go about that. But I think that's a, one of the biggest things that I think uh, bicycle computers in general, but spe specifically your product, I think offers to, uh, you know, maybe people that aren't as uh, experienced in the bicycle industry. I, I would say we have a, we still have a long way to go with user experience for sure. new cyclists. Sure. Mm -hmm. And that, that maybe goes back to how we were looking at early product development. We knew that a, a small portion of cyclists or, or quite a big portion of cyclists buy bike computers and use them, but they are very familiar with sort of patterns of user experience features that they expect from them. You know, there's sort of this in, industry inertia of what do these customers expect from a bike computer? Mm -hmm. um, but outside of that, I think a lot of cyclists say, well, they're not a racing cyclist or like they don't need the data or need the navigation. And I think there, that's totally just a barrier that you can blur with just simpler user experience um, and frankly, better, a better designed product that is, you know, f has familiar uh, user experience, user experience to a smartphone and is, you know, just a lot more approachable, I guess is a, a big thing there. Actually, I was uh, piggyback on that, like, you said it's like a smartphone there in the experience portion, but that technology that built smartphones also helped you guys from the hardware and the underlying software perspective make a great product. And one of the things I think is really neat about what you guys have done is you've taken something outside of what it was in, right? Like this technology chain and this experience and brought it into a very particular user group, a very particular need and niche that you guys saw. And that allowed your small team to make a product that really does feel wonderful, like in its space. And it was like a super cool way for you guys to leverage this technology that no one was putting in that space and make it your own. I think that's like a cool part of your story from hearing about it and, and knowing what you guys have done is that you saw this ability to leverage what existed in a way that no one else had. And that was the, the unique, right? That was the, the really cool part. For sure. And a lot of the Karoo One product thesis mm -hmm. was... You know, let's let's make that technology available. Let's build an operating system on this device with services that are 
very similar to what exists in the world of bike computers, but then the ability to update that product every fortnight. You know, every two weeks we can ship a software update and we can be a lot more of a software company once that hardware is into our customers' hands. We can be actively engaged with our customer base. We can be actively understanding their needs, their concerns, the elements of the product that aren't meeting their needs, and then deliver against those at a much more rapid rate. So once we sell that hardware to you, it's not just you buying something at X, three, you know, three ninety nine, mm-hmm. and it's that thing forever into the future. You're buying your way into an operating system and a, a set of features that is well designed presently, but is going to update and improve every two weeks. Um, and those earliest adopters of ours, the customers who bought the Karoo One, saw that. You know, they right. they were fully bought into that concept. Um, the Karoo One had a lot of features that they wanted that they didn't ultimately get until many, many months later. You know, a lot of those customers um, who stuck with us, who said, I'm not going to return this product, I believe you can reach feature parity or reach my feature expectations, got their feature eventually. Mm-hmm. And with Karoo 2, obviously we worked on a much more complete package with the first delivery, um, right, which right. is critical. And Most I, were like that, though. Not did, everyone. Did, did Some Karoo, people returned it because they didn't like it. Did Karoo have copy and paste on it? <laughs> did it? <laughs> Not like so. But I mean, you could use a keyboard. Sure, right? sure, yeah. sure. No, I'm, I'm oh, joking. Yeah. But. I was going to get it. Is that the you know when we when we launched Karoo One, there were customers who opened it up and said, "I was expecting a completed product, right?" And this is like a huge constraint for hardware companies, small ones in particular, is you need to ship something, right? Ship or die. Mm-hmm. Sure. But you are going to be constrained in your time. And if you ship something that is not feature complete in a mature space, of which our space is fairly mature, like players have been around for over a decade already. And our customers are very discerning. The right. ones who already buy my computers sure, are discerning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, an initial headwind we had when we first shipped Crew One was that the software was, uh, had a long way to go from what people were expecting to be parity with our competitors. Right. And so, you know, I think in some sense, we're almost underselling the faith that our customers put in us when they actually pre-ordered our product and then didn't return it if they were underwhelmed when they opened it. Mm -hmm. Because that promise kept going of like, well, now you have it and yes, it should get better. We're gonna work to make it better. But in the meantime, we needed to have things on there on day one that you would never get from one of our competitors. And right. so bringing it back to like the hardware side of development, that's yeah. where the screen came in as the right. one thing that we knew was just going to like blow everyone else out of the water. And hopefully that's like a good enough day one feature where customers will still want to use our product even right. if they're waiting for Strava live segments yeah. to come out. Yeah. Right? I mean, it kind of almost like what you're describing in a way, like I'm thinking in my head is almost like the original iPhone, right? Like when it came out, it Dollar had this. Dollar in a jar, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Dollar I, I, hate, jar. I, hate, I hate bringing them up, but, but it, is, it's, it is a good analogy, I think, because the phone wasn't nearly as capable as the competitors as mm-hmm. far as the feature set were concerned. Like no app store, right? Like like lots of limitations, but 
big, beautiful, gorgeous display could do the things that it did do well. So we just won't say their name anymore. So I don't owe you any more money. <laughs> yeah. But I think to me, that's what it sounds like was essentially like K1 was we're going to offer something that is fundamentally different that's being offered. It's not, we can't necessarily go toe to toe and compete for every single feature, but we will make the promise that we're going to try to get there uh, eventually where we're on parity with, with features while still doing, you know, these five or six things uh, really, really well, or, or do them in a way that's nobody else is doing them. Right. Mm -hmm. Is, is that, is that kind of the, the concept there? Pretty much. I mean, so this is like top level hardware development strategy right? yeah. for that product. It had to have an awesome screen. It had to run Android. Well, mm -hmm. last thing you want is a Android experience or, I mean, a product experience right. where if you have a capacitive touch panel and you swipe your finger, there's a delay right. between when you get to the next screen. And that's a thing where we knew that could be a day one feature right. that is actually kind of a gimme compared to our competitors where they either don't have a touch panel at all or there's delay. Or, or there's delay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so from the, from the hardware side, it was those two things also making sure that you're waterproof, which is not a, an edge in our competitors, but is like a table stakes thing. Right. It's a whole other part too. It's sure. like what Survivability things, on the bike. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's like what things must you have that you can't compromise on because you can't ship like a software update to a waterproof ability bug. So I was just going to bring up that <laughs> this is the segmentation of what your guys' product value is. You, you really have two completely separate columns, but they rely on each other to be valid, which is hardware and software. Mm -hmm. You don't just sell a hardware product. Yours is a connected, very complicated software product that goes onto a wonderful piece of hardware that's bespoke for its industry, right? For what you're doing. For the use case, yeah. Right. And, and I think the thing I wanted to, to ask about was like knowing that you can't software update hardware, right? And how, how did you guys prioritize the hardware features you, you wanted to put in, right? Because, you know, everyone, when they're drawing out the whiteboard product has million and one features and you pair that down to reality. And what was the, you know, how did you go about finding out which ones you really had to ship with and which ones, you know, you, you weren't going to do this round? Mm -hmm. I think that's the, a question I'd love to see if, if we could talk about. Yeah, I mean, good question. With, with Karoo, one... I would say a lot of the initial product spec was a combination of kind of in-house knowledge, so whatever understanding we had and assumptions we had with the industry, mm -hmm. um, some aspirational spec that that was really just saying this thing is a software powerhouse, and in the future we may need these tools, these radios, or these sensors in the product to really unlock a certain piece of software. Um, I think a lot of a lot of the spec obviously was cobbled together also from existing bike computers. You know, we looked at what do existing bike computers have, what will customers simply not accept if we're missing that. Uh, so specific radios like Ant Plus radios uh, was a requirement. The, right. The, the market for sensors in cycling is massive. There's an unbelievable amount of sensors. A lot of those sensors are relying on either Bluetooth right. or, or Ant Plus, which is a different uh, low energy wireless standard, which came before Bluetooth 4. Um, so the, the spec, I think really Karoo One was our, our most ambitious product considering the, 
size and scale of the business that we had at the time. And the spec came together with a couple of fundamental blind spots, which are probably quite fun to talk about. Um, one was it didn't have a beeper. <laughs> and this is kind of a, honestly like a joke in the company now because it really did hurt us. And in hindsight, we have data now on how many people care about beepers. Right. You're, sure. If you're riding down the road and not paying attention to a screen, you need an audio tone to make you pay attention to the screen. Some people hate those things. Like they will, they even don't like riding near other cyclists with these beepers. Sure. Mm -hmm. But some people absolutely rely on it for safety. But if you have a beeper, you can mute it. You can't necessarily right. software update a beeper yep. into the device, right? <laughs> exactly. So no, you can't. Unless you're really clever about you know playing with your power supply frequencies through your firmware updates. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then we had a lot of things that we overspec. You know, I, I often say this, but the customers who buy our products buy hardware that is far more capable than our competitors in terms of just raw spec. Like the, the, and if you, at the crudest level, the cost of goods is higher than our competitors. And obviously that's something that we would like to become more competitive with because sure. we need to survive as a business and make money. But at the same time, it, it does allow us to have a product that is very, very capable. And when we come up with fantastical ideas, it's really just a limitation of software development and product development bandwidth at that point. And I would like our business to start unlocking some of these kind of hidden capabilities of our product. And we have updates every two weeks. It's something that's not impossible to do. Right. And I think that that foundational comment that you just brought up is what I, why I asked the question. That you guys early on in your product development have to come up with a spec that is going to meet all of your hardware needs for all the wonderful software ideas that you have today and the ones you're going to have a year after launch, right? And and you guys have to kind of, you know, be really creative when you're specking this of what can we do and what could we do in the future with software and what is there in the hardware space I can put in today to enable that. And I think that's such a hard challenge that most people don't see when they go look at a hardware product. For sure. And I think anyone starting to build a hardware product or at least anyone who hasn't built one before is likely way overly ambitious <laughs> about software development timelines. Right. So if you, are, if, you, if you have hardware blinkers on and just imagine that the software team is going to imagine, like magically solve all these features that you're just baked into the hardware, it's not the case. Right. And if you have software blinkers on and believe that the hardware is just going to do exactly what you want it to, not the case. You know, right. That's no, for sure. The bandwidth required to unlock a very capable hardware product is immense and is almost always underestimated. Right. I think we've talked um, obviously a ton about like the, the, the hardware itself and like all the challenges that go into that. I mean, maybe you guys can talk a little bit about um, just like the Hammerhead team. I think one thing that's really struck me for, uh, a, you know, a company that has a hardware product uh, you know, you guys are, are sort of like super distributed. I mean, really, at the end of the day, fundamentally, like you said at the beginning, uh, Lawrence, you know, uh, global, right? And and that wasn't something that just came about because of the pandemic, right? I mean, you, you've kind of been built like that uh, to a certain extent f for a while now, right? We were remote before it was needed. 
A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I I know that you guys had, you know, pre pandemic had, you know, headquarters uh, and things like that, but, but I think you guys have always kind of had that. So, I mean, maybe can you talk a little bit about just what you view as uh, maybe some of like the pros of that? And and then obviously maybe, you know, what, you know, some of the downsides, right? I mean, it it is gotta be difficult sometimes in terms of, you know, having a physical product and, and moving things around and things right for, for people to prototype and demo. I mean, there's a really obvious thing there yeah. from just from the hardware side, right? Just right. To, to get right to the root of it is much hardware development needs to be done co-located because to understand how clicky is this button. Sure. You know, I can pull out a gram force meter and measure it. Right. But you're not going to know the difference between 300 and 250. Right. You just need to like try it out. Well, and they can both read 300, but one clicks better. Right. right? Yeah, and exactly. it's, it's that like undescribable, like I can't tell you it, you have mm-hmm. to touch and feel this. Like how quickly is this button? Like how does this latch feel? You know, how is, how does the texture feel, you know, on a given TPU, like for an over, over molding, for instance, how snappy is the touch screen? Like how bad is the glare? It's like, you just need something in front of you and to mm-hmm. get engineers in the same room and product developers just to like look at it and all see the same thing without having to film it and send it or, you know, actually like ship it and like wait for it to arrive is a huge pain point, you know? And so a blessing and a curse in the crew one days was that just having myself out in China, uh, meant that like I could evaluate it all. Right. But it also meant that the rest of the hammerhead team was basically meaning like, you know, Lawrence being the other hardware guy, like trust me that like I knew how clicky something would be and could work on like finding a solution. I I will say you did a great job with the the hammerhead ones (laughs) buttons. The, the, I mean the crew one that the buttons are amazing. I mentioned strengths. Right. We <laughs> haven't mentioned size and weight at any point. <laughs> right, right, right. So I'll rip that Band-Aid off. Yeah, they work really well with gloves too. So. Right. Yeah. Well, and so like for Karoo 2, which, I mean, bearing the lead is in stores now. Please go buy one. <laughs> buy Those two. buttons are, I would say, more elegant. More, Yeah, more refined. More refined. Definitely. And, and I got the pleasure of like understanding what clicky meant. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, like, exactly. And that's, that was a real process. Mm-hmm. Oh, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. And, you know, with that, it's like we had more people on the team at that point, mm-hmm. uh, not many more, but they weren't all in Shenzhen or Hong Kong. And so that meant in order to evaluate button clickiness, you had to be sending prototypes around all the time. If you would normally make one of something just to try it or make one of something with 10 different iterations to do a classic engineering thing, which is if you can't first principles your way to a solution, yeah. iterate then now everything gets a multiplier on it and it gets that much harder. And so that was a challenge we had in Karoo 2 being distributed, you know, again, pre-pandemic. Now that got even worse with the pandemic because I couldn't even go to Shenzhen. I'd moved to Hong Kong by that time. And right. so I was in that problem now too, where like no one at Hammerhead that was a full-time employee could actually evaluate any of this without having to be shipped to them. I mean, but that's just the hardware side. It's like it was, yeah. From from the business side, everywhere. I mean, from the business side, it's been. It's it has a lot of the time been an advantage because we we have a very international customer base at this point. You know, Europe is just a massive cycling market. Sure. So things like customer support, it's good to have people in different time zones. Um, And then in the world of software, where it's just very competitive in terms of. The hiring landscape, we got lucky with one of our VPs of software being sort of outside of Pennsylvania, uh, not Pennsylvania, <laughs> outside of Philly, um, 
and having a sort of really solid crew around him from his prior uh, job and attracting sort of local talent there, building this energy of some of them also being cyclists themselves of software developers that that team is probably the most uh, cohesive and built team together. Um, but it, it could happen because we didn't force everyone into a head office somewhere. You know, we, we didn't say, hey, we're hiring you VP of software, move to New York City, you know, up, uproot your entire life. Sure. I mean, he was close enough that that wouldn't have been moving across the country, right? Uh, yes. He, and, and that's Brian. This is, right. I can speak about a real person. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's, I, we certainly face that um, question now as we grow as an organization and we want to increase the rate of product development and the scope of things that we are working on. We have a lot of ambitions as a company. We've already built three complicated products and we obviously want to build on um, the value that we've built across those products. Uh, and that does mean looking at hardware product development in a, in a more creative way than, right. than just saying, oh, we're going to have a huge office and spend all this money on all this equipment and just force everyone into that office. Um, it, it might not work. You know, if, if we just took that approach dogmatically, I think it might end up breaking the, some, the things that are good about our current approach. But having everyone completely distributed and never seeing each other is also not an option. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the reasons why we gather as a team is for to click the buttons and bring out the force meters and run the test machinery. Uh, and we're probably just going to have to figure out how to do that more frequently or on a cadence that that allows everyone to live their lives and develop hardware. That's awesome. Well, guys, um, we really appreciate you. Um, you know, obviously, you guys were here this week with us. Uh, so obviously, thanks for, for coming out and uh, spending some time. Again, like you said, I think it's been great, uh, you know, working together on some challenging, you know, problems and things. Uh, you know, uh, I think there are some benefits, obviously, sometimes when you can just literally, you know, uh, you know, uh, duke it out over a, over a whiteboard <laughs> instead of maybe a Zoom meeting. But sure. um, yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting, I think, story that you guys have. And, and I think that the biggest thing that I see, the more hardware companies that I, uh, talk to is it's, uh, like it, it's, at some point it's, it's almost about like survivability, right? Like I think if you can survive long enough to release multiple iterations and sort of like build on past experiences and features and, and really hone in on truly like what that customer voice is. And I think you guys like even listening to your story, you can kind of see that, that, that arc or that narrative sort of play out. Um, I, I think it's, it's super exciting. Uh, where K2 is at, and, and it'll be even more exciting, I think, to see uh, how you guys continue to, to iterate uh, in the future. So uh, thanks for coming on and, and talking to us about it today. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to maybe uh, having some more conversations in the future. Yeah, next time we come down to Glassboard, yep. have yep. us back on the podcast. We look forward to it. Okay, yeah. awesome. And maybe next time we could be announcing some of the things we've been working on. Who knows? Sure, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> be awesome. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.